Section 11 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 2, Chapter 4, The First Renaissance. Poetry awoke in France toward the close of the 11th century. There had indeed been poems before, but scarcely poetry. Indeed, the earliest poems in France strike us as singularly unpoetical. Even the life of St. Alexis, so moving in its conception, for St. Alexis, like Gautama, is a young prince who escapes from his palace and the arms of his bride to lead the ascetic life. Even this touching story is presented without simplicity or grace. Rhetoric and declamation, those bad fairies of French art, were apparently present at its cradle. But towards 1080, some fifteen years after the Battle of Hastings, there arose a great poet in the land of France. We do not know his name. He was probably, at least this is M. Bédier's theory, one of those wandering minstrels who on fair days and feast days used to chant long poems of romance and adventure to the crowds assembled in the marketplace, as even to this day they do in the small country towns of Auvergne, where the patois poems of my kinsman, Vermenus, are so recited. The Middle Ages have left us many of these historical poems or chansons de geste, but none of them equal the chanson de Roland. To quote a fine phrase of Mr. Strachey's, this great work, bleak, bare, gaunt, majestic, stands out like some huge mass of ancient granite on the far horizon of the literature of France. The old poet knew how to deal with life and death. Quarrelsome, chivalrous, brave to temerity, the knights that he portrayed in the eleventh century are wonderfully like the Frenchmen that we meet today. Homer himself could not surpass the death of Roland, as he runs forward, feeling the fog in his throat, and throws himself down on the green turf beneath a pine with his face to the earth, and then, in one last impulse of pride and love, lifts his head and looks out toward the great country he has conquered, Espagne le Grand. And so he falls to thinking of several things, the many lands he has overcome and sweet France, and the men of his line, and Charlemagne, at whose court he was bred, and the Frenchman who had such faith in him. De plusieurs choses armembrailly priste, de dulce France, des hommes de son ligne. All the modern movement of nationalism, all the cult of la terre et les morts, are presaged in that line. The Chanson de Roland is supposed to have been written towards 1080, and then, for a hundred years, France produced no veritable masterpiece. That nameless old minstrel was like the one bird who, of a summer's night, wakes an hour before the others to herald the dawn. About 1160, the full concert bursts out in a flood of spontaneous music. It is difficult to know what causes a renaissance, one of those rare revivals and renewals of beauty and mind, invention and creation, which at long intervals transfigure the world and inaugurate a new order. I think they are always preceded by much coming and going on the surface of the earth. 
vast interchanges of ideas and experience among the nations of men and certainly there has rarely been a wider and freer intercourse a more continual come and go than during that period of the crusades france was but a little kingdom during the twelfth century on the east provence and lorraine were fiefs of the empire brittany on the west owed an intermittent allegiance sometimes to england sometimes to france and remained practically independent of either the king of england owned normandy anjou aquitaine poitou but the small kingdom of france was full of life and possessed a power of expansion quite out of proportion to its size if the king of england was the feudal suzerain of much land in france the mind of england paid tribute to the french the entire literature of england was french not only were the french poets and historians welcomed at the norman court across the channel where their works were widely appreciated but the inhabitants of england spoke and wrote in french and some of the oldest and most beautiful examples that we possess of medieval french poetry were composed in england by anglo-norman writers thomas the author of the roman de tristan eleven seventy marie de france about the same date jordan fantome and others and there were other norman kings in sicily and the south of italy whose courts were also a centre for the culture of france and the crusaders bore the influence of their country still further afield from ten ninety nine until eleven eighty seven there were french kings at jerusalem and french counts at joppa the code of laws which they drew up for the government of their french subjects in the east is one of the most curious monuments of their time in twelve o four a french empire was founded in constantinople it lasted nearly sixty years the emperor's crown was adjudged to baudouin of flanders the marquis of montferrat was elected king of macedonia villardouin was marshal of romania Rumelia, and his nephew prince of achaea there were dukes of athens dukes of thrace dukes of naxos there were counts of cephalonia a sire of thebes and a seigneur of corinth delicious titles that seemed to hail from one of shakespeare's comedies but they were real enough were perhaps the most tangible result of the crusades for all these little french courts were fostering places and nursery gardens for french culture and for the french language while in their turn they communicated to the mother country the secrets and marvels of the east trade plied from shore to shore there was a rich french colony at st jean d'acre which for two centuries remained a golden link uniting east and west there were eight crusades between ten ninety five and twelve seventy and doubtless many of them were irresistible explosions of faith and enthusiasm especially the first and those two latter ones due to the saintly and heroic impulsion of st louis but in all human effort there is an alloy others were prompted by the desire of wealth some were political adventures but whether holy wars romances of chivalry or commercial enterprises these eight heroic expeditions certainly modified the course of civilization their grandeur was fecund and their agitation not in vain 
although the heathen regained possession of the holy sepulchre. The nations learned to know each other, the East was revealed to them. Richard and Saladin saw each that the other was not a savage, but a very perfect knight. The crusaders brought home with them new arts, the weaving in figures of silk and linen, and the metal incrustations of Damascus, which still preserve the city's name, Damask, Damascene, the glass of Tyre, which was imitated at Venice, the gauze or muslin of Gaza, the weaving of carpets, the use of cotton, also the invention of windmills, so simple, so efficacious. The crusaders returned with new plants for their gardens. St. Louis brought back the ranunculus, the king of Navarre, the damask rose, and new trees for their orchards, the damson or damask plum, the mulberry tree, which was so greatly to enrich both Italy and France, and the sugar cane, which would only grow in Sicily and Spain, and doubtless they brought home microbes enough. Leprosy seems to have become more frequent, and a new kind of rat, which is now our old black rat. But what they especially brought home was a new crop of ideas. History dates from the Crusades, that is to say, French history, for Sidonius Apollinaris and Gregory of Tours, though they wrote of French history, did not write in French. Hitherto the vulgar tongue had not served for such grand uses, and a literate society does not think of chronicling its daily doings in its humble dialect. But when half the feudal society of France was transported to the other side of the world, those who stayed at home did not stint their questions, and those who returned wished to leave their children some record of their marvellous campaign. And so, after several rude attempts, the Fourth Crusade gave the world the first great modern historian, Geoffrey of Villardouin, Seneschal of Champagne, and Marshal of Romania. His conquest of Constantinople, which doubtless he dictated to a secretary, is full of those French qualities of sincerity, regularity, and noble order, which we shall henceforth so often find in French literature, and makes us exclaim as we recognize them, our neighbors are certainly a Latin race. And then the Fifth Crusade brought forth a charming example of the quite different type of Frenchman, apparently entirely Celtic. Joinville is as garrulous, as curious, as familiar and indiscreet, as candid and as supple as Montaigne, but not, of course, as intellectual. Full of fine shades and life and movement, and as he describes the sainte parole et bon fait of his hero, Saint Louis, whom he accompanied to the Holy Land, we feel as though we had come across some lovable, sweet, and yet heroic transformation of the Knight of La Mancha and his squire. Of all the Crusades, the most profitable to France was the one really odious one, the Crusade against the Albigeois. It was really a war of the North on the South, a struggle between two incompatible civilizations, the feudal Frankish fighting nobility of France, and that Romania, now sunk in a corrupt if brilliant decadence, which still preserved the traditions of antiquity. The Albigeois were a pretext, a pretext perfectly sincere, for Orthodox Catholicism could not tolerate the perverse and aristocratic sect 
which perpetuated the most dangerous theories of the Gnostics. True, we know the doctrines of the Albigensians, chiefly from the account of their enemies and persecutors, the Cistercians, but this account coincides exactly with the teaching of those half-Oriental, half-Slavonic apostles of pessimism, whose demoralizing speculations permeated the heresies of the Middle Ages. They held that the world is evil, and said that since God is all good, this visible, tangible world is not his work at all, but the creation of some vile competitor and demiurge, whom we abet when we enter the realm of action, if we marry, or work, or enroll ourselves in a church. And they said but in secret that the Christ who was born visibly in an earthly Bethlehem was an evil spirit, but that the real Christ had never eaten, nor drunk, nor appeared to human eyes, for he had been born and died for us in a new and invisible sphere. And to that sphere, only after seven lives of penance and renunciation, endured successively in seven earthly incarnations, only so may at last the pure and the perfect attain. The Middle Ages took their religion very seriously, and doubtless the spread of these speculations filled the pious with a holy horror. The theories of the Catharis, the pure, seem to have reached the south of France, especially Toulouse and Albi, at the very beginning of the eleventh century, and to have spread all through Languedoc to Poitiers and even to Champagne, rooting themselves in those half-mystical, half-sensual literary cliques and courts of love, where the troubadours had prepared the ground for them by the elaboration of an extraordinary tenuity of sentiment. To them also the invisible and the unpossessed was dearer than all that we can touch and own and know. They too said that marriage was incompatible with passion, and the Countess of Champagne proclaimed as a law, Amorum non passe suas interduos conjugales extendere vires. Full of ultra-refinement and unreality as they were, these little courts of Provence, of Languedoc, and of Champagne were nonetheless important to the future. Their subtle, mystic, sentimental lore prepared the way for a greater poetry, for a still more mysterious feeling, the love of Dante for Beatrice in heaven, the sonnets of Petrarch to his absent Laura. All through the eleventh and twelfth century, Albi, Toulouse, Béziers, Carcassonne had been centres of a brilliant civilization. Luxury, elegance, poetry, political independence, lifted them into another sphere from the rude feudalism of the north. There was a curious antipathy between the two races, the long-haired, rustic, Frankish warriors and hunters, and these men of the south with their music and their manners, shaved like actors with their smooth short hair, their ridiculous pointed boots, men without faith or law, the vainest and lightest-minded of the human kind, as Rodolphe Glauber described them in the eleventh century. He said, too, that the laxness of their morals corresponded with the heresy of their religious views, and this mutual dislike and distrust persisted from age to age, so that at last in 1208 the enemies of the Southerners united against them. The papacy resolved to exterminate the Manichees, 
the feudal barons jealous of the riches and the culture of a chivalry too different from their own ideal the king desirous of an effective suzerainty over the south still foreign in laws language manners customs from the france beyond the loire the crusade was declared against the albigensians and the war was without pity in july twelve o nine fifty thousand frenchmen marched against beziers and fifteen thousand persons in the town and district alone were put to the sword the count of toulouse one of the six fundamental peers of france was dethroned like the lords of beziers and narbonne little by little the king of france annexed most of their possessions with the provinces of Ony, Poitou, Perigord, and the Limousin. Before twenty years were out, the monarchy had conquered all the south of France, west of the Rhone, to within four leagues of the city of Toulouse. The royal authority stretched from the Channel to the Atlantic coast. France was one that hitherto had always been twain. There was no longer any Romania in Gaul. The separate civilization of the South had perished. The gay science was no more. But in dying, the poetry of the troubadours and all that went with it fertilized the literature of the conqueror, and mingling there with another new and strange element, the Celtic spirit, produced a wonderful efflorescence, one of the most extraordinary revivals of art and letters that the world has witnessed. We know how to trace the influence of the South but whence came that sudden invasion of the Celtic spirit? Whence drifted into France that subtle, mystic, sentimental charm? There are few greater problems in literature. Our doctors disagree. Gaston Paris opines that the Arthurian legend penetrated into France from England and the Anglo-Norman poets of the English court. Vedelin, Fürster, and Joseph Bédier believe that the French courtly poets heard of Guinevere and Lancelot, of Tristan and Isot, from the ragged wandering harpers of Brittany and Wales, who roamed from castle to castle and from fair to fair, chanting to their tiny rote or harp in their uncouth foreign tongue, tales that charmed away the dullness and the chill of medieval winter. Is it not likely that the story of the round table, filtered down from above, welled up from below simultaneously? To the Romain de Renard, the strolling foreign harper says to Ison Grain the wolf, Je faut savez bon les Bretons, et dit Merlin et dit Foucault, Del roi Artou et dit Tristan, et sais-tu le lait d'Amissé? Yai, dit-il, God is tué, God is to wit. But the great ladies in their fine tongue told the same tales as the wandering minstrels from overseas in their abominable jargon, since we know that Chrétien de Troyes owed the inspiration of his story about Lancelot, La Charette, to the Countess of Champagne. The poet leaves us no doubt on the subject. Matière et sans sont donnés livres, la comtesse, et ils sont tremés, de penser si que rien n'y met, que sa peine et sa tension. It was probably at the learned literary courts of Eleanor of Aquitaine, queen first of France and then of England, and of her two charming daughters, Aélice, Countess of Blois, and Marie, Countess of Champagne, that the civilization of the South fused with the Breton legends imported from England 
and produced that marvellous explosion of poetry and romance those elegant and amorous little courts had each its laureate gautier d'arras lived and wrote at the court of blois chretien de troyes was the glory of the court of champagne and chretien was a really considerable poet something akin to tennyson and racine and what is more after all these years a really interesting poet all our conception of the arthurian legend can be traced to him he it was even more than geoffrey of monmouth who turned the savage breton heroes and queens into feudal knights and ladies who speak finement and love finement as people spoke and loved at the court of marie de champagne in his romantic poems chretien is the creator of the french psychological novel there is but a step between his charrette and the princesse de cleve he wrote with a colour of sentiment a delicacy a sense of style hitherto unknown in the rustic roman tongue the nature of french literature is already defined its keenness of observation its interest in things as well as in persons its sentimental perspicacity its subtle analysis its purity of expression if in chretien there are passages that seem to foreshadow racine there are in a contemporary novel in verse lescoufle descriptions of fashionable life portraits of places elegant interiors oddly mixed with psychological hair-splitting that suggest paul bourget after the poets came the master builders this renaissance of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries is the heroic age of the french cathedrals first a style of grandeur and simplicity a transition from the pure roman or as we say norman architecture to early gothic long rows of tall pillars cloistered columns in the clare story overhead slender towers of many stories a great impression of nobility and charm then in the thirteenth century an ever-increasing richness a huge mass of extraordinarily varied life a people of statues five hundred and fifty in the portal of rheims and all living smiling praying brooding full of significance and truth deep cavernous porches full of shadow and the mystical rose of the central window streaming with colour and symbolic imagery and wonderful light vaulted naves and choirs a hundred feet high under whose solemn loftiness man sinks to an insect's stature the real poetry of the french middle ages is builded and carved in stone but in kind and style and period its progress still keeps step with that of the written word and the cathedral of laon is to the cathedral of rheims just what the chanson de roland restrained severe sublime is to the poignant mysterious pathetic romance of tristan or of arthur End of section 11